1: and welcome to Country Breakfast, my name is Clint Jasper. On the show today we get a fascinating insight into what it takes to run one of Spain's leading agricultural cooperatives, dealing with the challenges of drought, soaring input costs
2: and keeping thousands of members happy. We try to reinforce what we call the emotional link with the co-op. You have to feel that this is much more than price. Is that uh, we are a group, is that we have more opportunities together, is that we are goalkeepers and we don't know where they are going to throw the ball.
1: But first up, it's time for rural news, and this week I'm joined by Kath Sullivan. Good morning. How are you, Clint? I'm well, thanks. Kath, there was a pretty important birthday marked this week. Was it all cake and celebrations?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it depends uh, which side of the the debate you might be on, I think, Clint. Uh, We're talking about 10 years since the Murray-Darling Basin plan was legislated. And before those eyes glaze or people think, oh, goodness, (laughs) this is too difficult to comprehend. Can I just point out the Murray-Darling Basin produces $22 billion dollars of food and fibre every year. It's $11 billion Mm. of tourism. It's home to more than 120 waterbird species, something like 50 native fish species, 16 protected wetlands. And the Australian taxpayer has spent $13 billion on on the past decade trying to get this legislation or trying to enact this legislation and get this plan, which sets out how water should be shared right. So um, it is interesting.
1: It is. And to mark the 10 years, there's a new boss at the MDBA Mm -hmm. and, and he gave a little bit of an address to the National Rural Press Club on Tuesday, I think it was, right?
3: Andrew McConville, has only been in the gig for four months, he was actually appointed in the dying days of the last um, parliament, and he comes to the role, to the public service, having most recently worked as the, the head, the CEO of APIA, which is the oil and gas lobby here in Australia. Um, he's taken on the role at a pretty critical time in the implementation of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, because there are just a couple of years to go before some key targets are met. And he a packed Press Club here in Canberra this week and uh, gave a pretty interesting update on where things are at.
4: Through the Basin Plan, water's now set aside for critical human water needs. Water for towns and cities is now prioritised in dry times. This didn't exist in the millennium drought. There's been significant government invest- investment to make every drop count, on-farm and off-farm, modern clever irrigation networks, smart water metres and precision watering on-farm, Certainly a far cry from the death ridge wheels of old when I used to go out to farms in the west of New South Wales.
1: And things generally in the Murray-Darling Basin water space have, I know, I feel personally have kind of kicked up a notch. It feels like the news is coming thick and fast, reports, um, updates, Senate estimates, things like that. (laughs)
3: Speaking of reports, I think Andrew McConville noted something like 70 independent reviews and reports um, into the Murray Darling Basin on water management over the past decade. And he also pointed out um, the number of jurisdictions or politicians that um, o- oversee different parts of the basin at various <laughs> levels of government and it was all enough to, um, to bring on the sweats, really. <laughs> it was quite quite a nervous time. But there has been a lot of progress made in the past decade and Andrew McConville really um, wanted to celebrate the, the work that has been done. Some 2,100 gigalitres, um, you're better on how many Sydney harbours that is oh. <laughs> than I am, <laughs> has been recovered for the rivers over that time and that's been predominantly water or water entitlement or irrigation rights that have been bought back from farmers.
4: Turning around 100 years of overconsumption doesn't happen quickly but today we want our quick fixes like the gratification of likes on TikTok and nothing could be truer than the expectation placed on the basin plan and turning around the decline of the health in our rivers and our wetlands and our floodplains takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Importantly, we have seen improvements, and I'll touch on those in a moment. But first, I think we must reflect on the fact that this change has come at a cost to our irrigation-dependent communities. Make no mistake, they have done the heavy lifting. And on this, the 10-year anniversary of the Basin Plan, all Australians need to stop and think about that. But
1: they've left some hard work to come. This is where people's eyes tend to glaze over. There's a final bit of water recovery to get done because back in 2017, the state, basin state governments and the federal government agreed that instead of just taking the water out of the river, transferring it from the consumption side to the environment side, about 605 gigalitres of water recovery was swapped basically for projects that would deliver the same environmental outcomes as just by the water.
3: That's right. These um, projects are called Sidlam Projects, but I'm trying to <laughs> not get too caught up in the jargon. Basically, um, the Commonwealth funded these projects water projects, and the states were in charge of delivering them, and the whole idea was that 605 gigalitres would be recovered that could go to environmental causes or would remain in the river to better the environment from top to bottom throughout the basin. And these projects, the water savings are meant to be reconciled in June 2024, would You mentioned Senate estimates. Um, A a recent hearing had suggested that there was a shortfall of about 160 gigalitres on on this 605. Well, Andrew McConville updated that figure this week and said that it could be as much as 315 gigalitres short, which, um, you know, that's more than half of of what (laughs) these projects are meant to deliver.
1: Yeah, and I was looking through the projects in that report, and just to give people an idea of what these proposals are and what they're trying to do, um, let's look at NIA floodplain project in northern Victoria. So basically, to simulate the, the natural flooding that would occur on that floodplain, they would have to push the river up. Height up to a minor flood level to get the water to flow over the bank and into the floodplain, and for the environment there, the water and the anim- uh, sorry, the plants and the animals to get all the environmental benefits from that flooding. So instead of acquiring the water it would take to push that much water down the river and flood, they're actually proposing that they'll put in regulators, four different regulators, so they can just let water from the main channel across the floodplain and potentially back into the river. And that's the equivalent environmental outcome of of acquiring that water. So that's one example of that project. and. It's also an example of a project that's at risk of not being done in June 2024 because, of course, the river's in flood at the moment and it potentially will be until autumn next year. And the past two years have seen some big complications with uh, moving construction crews and everything across the border um, and things with the supply chain of doing any type of construction.
3: Yeah, it's not lost on water managers that we're having this conversation about water recovery and ensuring that there are is going to be water in the system when the next drought comes, at a time when people have got their homes inundated, paddocks mm-hmm. inundated, when water managers don't have access to various parts of infrastructure. Um, we, and as you point out rightly, Clint, there it's going to take months till we really know the extent of what, what has happened. Just while we're talking about these projects, I think it is worth pointing out um, Um, what's going on with the Menindee Lakes project. Um, Of course, a lot of people recall um, when the dead fish, the the fish kills emerged at Menindee in the middle of the drought. (laughs) People are familiar with this part of the basin. It's almost geographically in the middle. And the New South Wales government had this task of recovering 105 gigalitres um, through infrastructure works in the Menindee Lakes. Now, that project had to be re-scoped and re-scoped As far as I can gather, there hasn't been any work done there to date and this whole idea of gathering or recovering 105 gigalitres is really just slipping away off into the distance, and even with the rescoped works, I think there's a scuttlebutt that if that project was to get community support, and I think that's a huge if at this if stage, if. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it would only recover something like forty gigalitres. So you're starting to get a sense of how it could be up to three hundred fifteen gigalitres short across these state managed projects. <sighs> Well, where does
1: this leave us all, Kath? As we've said a few times there, is this deadline of June 2024 for these projects to be completed? What actually happens on that date?
3: Well, on that date, Clint, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority will undertake a reconciliation um, and it has to report back to the federal government about where things are at at that time. It was interesting to hear Andrew McConville, the new boss of the authority, say that the world doesn't end on June 2024. (laughs) Things keep happening and water management, it's evolving all the time. And it's likely there will be more Murray-Darling Basin plans Into the future. But what will happen is when we get to this June 2024 deadline, the government will have to decide if it will buy the water from willing sellers in the system. And we've heard the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, say that she has had approaches from irrigators who do want to sell their entitlement. They prefer to sell it to the Commonwealth because they think that they can get a premium rather than selling it to their neighbour or somebody else uh, up and down the system. And it will be up to the federal government as to whether or not they'll open up the Water Act and the Basin Plan legislation to extend these deadlines. And I think we've pointed out before, there's a pretty uh, serious Water Ministers' Council meeting scheduled for early February, got to get the Victorian election out of the way and uh, in before the New South Wales one kicks off, where some really heavy decisions will have to be determined. And you, Kath Sullivan, and
1: I will be watching closely. Thanks for helping me wrap up 10 years of the Basin Plan in uh, roughly 10 minutes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, wasn't quite the uh, birthday cake and streamers that um, I might have hoped for, but always good to talk about water policy.
1: Absolutely. Kath Sullivan, thank you very much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Thanks, Clint. And just briefly to some other news this week, an alliance of food producers and distributors took to Parliament House in Canberra earlier this week, calling for a national food security plan. The National Food Security Supply Chain Alliance represents convenience store operators, farmers, meat workers, independent retailers, hospitality workers, warehouse and transport operators. Their spokesman is Richard Forbes. 80% of Australians are concerned about rising food prices. Uh, Food
5: Bank's Hunger Report 2022, three weeks ago, said that 2 million Australians are struggling to put food on the table, and that includes 1.3 million children in Australia are food insecure. What we're facing is quite
1: unprecedented. And finally, an old furfy water carton tank that had been living in a paddock in Beechworth in northeast Victoria for decades sold at a clearing sale for a record $61,300. Furfy water carts have in recent years become collector's items. The horse-drawn water carriers were made in Shepparton and they were a common sight on farms from the late 1800s. Clearing sale manager from Kevin Hicks Real Estate, Chelsea McKay, says she was shocked at the final price.
3: We had mentioned that we hadn't seen one with the Furfy the pump on the front that had sort of no real indication as to value at the time. Yeah, we, we then spoke to a couple of uh, local collectors who all said, oh no, that'll be very, very sought after. Oh, no. Within the first 24 hours, it jumped from um, 10, 15 to 25.
6: And
1: I'm sure that's got a couple of people rummaging through the scrap heap. That is Rural News this week.
4: It's always Oz Music Month on The Music Show, but November is Oz Music Month across the ABC, and we've lined up some top conversations for you. We'll be chatting to the likes of Marinda Dias-Jayasena, Felix Riebel, Lisa Moore, and Elena Katz-Jernin. And we'll have tracks and live music. The Music Show, weekend mornings at 11 on RN.
1: This week we're stepping into a busy butcher shop, where we'll meet a keen apprentice who's following in her mum's footsteps, honing her knife skills and learning about different cuts of meat. We'll take a tour of a regional brewery that's recycling water and tapping into the power of the sun as it reduces its environmental footprint with the aim of becoming carbon neutral. And we'll hear about an initiative that's turning Deadwood into a valuable resource in a remote Indigenous community. It's also giving a group of young men something that's turning out to be life-changing.
7: Yeah, well, they've got a lot more confidence. They um, make them happy, I suppose. It it gives them money in their bank to, to be able to you know buy new clothes buy stuff a lot of them talk about saving up buying a toyota and going out traveling going fishing going hunting so it it gives them a, a good meaning in life you know We'll hear more about how harvesting firewood
1: is giving young men in a remote community paid work as well as returning profits to local residents. That's coming up. First today, we're headed to the lush forests of Victoria's Otway Ranges, where Alistair Watt has spent the past 40 years nurturing rare trees collected from around the globe. Reporter Rihanna Stevens visited Alastair in his garden.
8: Uh, we're going to have a look at the, a Chinese conifer called Taiwania.
0: We're in Alistair Uh, Watt's garden on a misty spring day. It feels more like a manicured forest, small paths weave between towering trees. Alistair is taking me to see his favourite tree.
8: My favourite is a is a conifer called Decridium guilleminiae. It's very rare. There you are, that's my real favourite. So this, this is probably about 15 years old this this particular little specimen. It's tiny. Yep. It's
0: a spindly thing which comes up to Alistair's waist. Even in a warmer climate, this conifer wouldn't grow more than about two metres.
8: Only grows in one little spot in New Caledonia beside a river. Actually grows in the water of the river. But if you if you see it growing in the wild, it just it looks so ancient, you just can imagine a dinosaur walking down to drink at the river and splatting his big foot on top of it, and there it goes, getting even more rarer.
0: Alistair's passion for rare trees stretches back four decades to when he and his family first moved to the Otways, and he set up a furniture making business.
8: I make furniture for a living, and one of the timbers I worked with was Ewan Pine. I actually opted to stop using it. It shouldn't be getting used for what I was doing. The pine is a a, a very beautiful wood and it's very slow growing. It only grows along riverbanks in very wet places in Tasmania. And it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to get a tree big enough to mill for timber.
0: Instead of using logged hewn pine for timber, Alistair decided to have a go at growing his own in his garden.
8: I tried to track some down here to grow, I eventually I found some. So there's a hewan pine. This little beauty could be growing for another one or 2,000 years. This is one of the first trees I planted here. This is a matter of great patience. I got the hewan pine growing, and then I started tracking down other trees, and it became obvious that uh, some of the trees I was interested in growing, weren't being grown in Australia. So then became a new challenge, how to find the way to go and get them from overseas uh, to bring back for the garden.
0: Hunting for rare trees has taken Alistair to Asia, the Pacific and South America.
8: Plant hunting is the term they use or plant exploration. What you do is you do all your research, preparation. write to lots of people over there, forestry departments, university as that, um, and then get over, go and track them down. bring. We're well, bringing seeds mainly uh, and cuttings. Probably I introduced something around 200, 250 new plant species to Australia and to some gardens overseas.
0: Alastair's expeditions were often done in collaboration with Botanic Gardens in Australia. The cuttings and seeds he brought in would go through a quarantine process at special, secure greenhouses within botanic gardens. The process could last months, even years, before the material was deemed safe and Alastair could plant some of the specimens in his garden. Slowly, Alistair has transformed what was once a treeless paddock into a forest.
8: This was a completely bare block. Not a thing on it. 40 years later, we've got almost 100% what you'd call forest and woodland cover.
0: Alistair's trees could be here for thousands of years. He says they act as an insurance policy if the original populations are ever wiped
8: out. If it ever is lost in the wild, there is some semblance of a stop left. Some of these trees uh, are recorded as being here Someone needs to get them for scientific work.
0: Alistair's collection of rare trees has also given him entry to an exclusive club.
8: Very proud to say I'm a member of the International Dendrology Society and that is for people who grow trees. And this is where I think is really cool. It's, there was an article published on the most exclusive societies in the world that you can't join. Well, our society was on that list. You can only be in it if you're invited to join. Yeah, I mean, it's not a planned career path. It's just something that, you know, it keeps grabbing your attention. People say you're mad to start a garden like this, but then after 40 years, you get used to doing it and living it. Um, I don't know how people manage not to build a garden.
9: In a remote community on South Australia's far west coast, a group of young Yalata Anangu men are firing up chainsaws and turning dead wood into a valuable resource. Hello, I'm Jodie Hamilton. I'm watching on as this team of workers gather and chop wood to be packaged up and sold as firewood. The profits from firewood sales will help fund the purchase of solar panels and offset some of the costs as the community transitions to paying for their energy supply. As Yalata new Aboriginal Lands Chief Executive David White explains.
10: The people here have never had to pay for their power. That's changing in the next year. So what we tried to do is get the board to search deeply into their hearts and see what was a positive. And we came up with an opportunity thinking, okay, if we, we've got plenty of dead wood lying around, which is a product called Western Mile, and it burns hot long and leaves no ashes and everybody wants to, wants to use it. So we did a deal with a, an outside company called Longburn Firewood. They have opportunities, already have contracts with people like Coles Express. We thought, okay, if we get a band of people together and see if we can um, learn how to package and collect wood and sell it to this Longburn, what would happen? We explained to the people that, who were gonna join was, look, okay, It's a new business, we need your help. You will be paid a good wage for the work that you do. And then any profits that we make from this business, we would put back into the community. And they said, how are we going to put it back? I said, right, we're going to be charged for power. If we could buy a solar panel or solar panels for each house and generate our own power, you know, with the profits of the wood business, well, everybody, it's a win-win.
9: David White says for many of the men working on the firewood project, This has been the first time they've earned a weekly wage.
10: A lot of these guys we were in touch with because they come through our youth programs, obviously our school and our sport area, so we knew who they were and we didn't see them around much and they're generally sitting around playing computer games. So we got a couple of those guys out, took them outside. So, you know, we've got lots of land here and uh, lots of spaces and lots of wood. So we first took them outside in our vehicles and showed them what we we're going to do. We showed them some videos of other successful wood businesses and how they went about it. Five turned to 10, turned to 15. You know, these people started telling other people and the guys were involved from the ground floor up. You know, they, these young fellows built the business on their own. Um, it was very exciting for them and then and we've got a, a really good young man, uh, Will Wilton, who leads the crew. And it, it's like a little footy team in there, you know. They joke around and they verbally, they, they're very serious when they're handling the heavy equipment and stuff. But when they're packaging and stuff, there's lots of lots of fun and laughter, which is good. They're a great bunch of young lads. Very enthusiastic at the moment. You know, it's been going on pretty well for a few months now.
9: Do you think part of the success is that that money that they might be generating, or that they are generating, is going back into the community for a a cause?
10: I'm sure it is. It was hard to sort of convince people to um, believe what we were doing, but once we showed them that the value of each packet they did, you know, what we sell it for and what we do, you know, how much percentage that goes to their wages and then what's left, you know, pays for equipment and fuel and stuff. And then again, the profits at the end of the year will go into actually powering their own houses. They were very excited, very proud.
9: And will that give them pride um, in ownership in the community as well? It
10: it really has already, you know, the kids are really, uh, there's a lot of chatter about it, you know, amongst the community members. And there's been some feedback from outside of the community, which has made the guys really proud about their achievements already. I think just turning up to work and having fun and still achieving our daily goals, you know, which is there's a pallet consists of 66 bags of wood and we have to have 22 pallets put it to load a truck up to go out of here and that's a lot of wood.
9: Team coordinator, William Wilton, says the young men enjoyed getting out on their land, but also working in the shed to package the product.
7: So in the mornings, the fellas rock up, they have tea, coffee. We have a bit of a yarn about what we're gonna do during the day. We're gonna delegate some jobs to each other, split up into groups and we'll have a group go out in the troopie with a trailer. Pick up the timber. We'll have a group out the back, cut it up into the sections, into the 300 mm sections, and fill these tubs here for the packaging stage.
9: Mr. Wilton says the work being done is not just for the community, but for the workers' mental health as well.
7: Yeah, well, they've got a lot more confidence. They um, makes them happy, I suppose. It, it gives them money in their bank to, to be able to, you know, buy new clothes, buy stuff. And a lot of them talk about saving up, buying a Toyota, and going out travelling, going fishing, going hunting, so it, it gives them a, a good meaning right. in life. You
9: know. Ashley Bynell has had his chainsaw qualifications for about five years and was the first to sign up to work. He says he loves getting out
11: and doing something for his community. Well, I like to be out on country and cutting wood, it's peaceful. It's, the fellas love it and when we come out here, like cutting wood, have a bit of a walk around until Stories about the land and and the wood that we cut—it's the hardest wood in Australia that we got. So your wood—that's the hard wood. Sometimes our chainsaws get blunt, and we have to sharpen them. Mean bit of maintenance and stuff like that. I like to be out on country and operating a chainsaw and showing the other followers how to operate a chainsaw. Like if they want to cut quickly, they have to do it safely and make sure they've got PP like. Helmet, chaps and sunglasses so they don't lose an eyesight and stuff like that. Before I start cutting, I'm always checking trees, make sure there's no birds and live animals uh, living amongst them.
9: And the community is not just taking the deadwood to sell, but local rangers are also helping to revegetate the western miles. Yalata Ananu Aboriginal Lands Head Ranger Andrew Alderson says it's important to look at the future of the trees too
6: yeah so in the past we would just clear cut and fell so we'd be left with a big bear patch but now we're the ranger programs trying to rehabilitate the sites with new trees because the recruitment of young baby trees in this species is very difficult it only happens once every 20 to 30 years and we want to give it a bit of a head start we collect seeds from the trees each spring once we got them all back at base we soaked them in hot water overnight once the seed shot we plant them out singly in little containers and yeah give them some love and it will take a couple of years before we can get them in the ground but yeah they're a very slow growing tree so it takes a lot of love and care yeah so the community traditionally hasn't replaced trees normally you just go and cut down what you needed and 10 years later you come back and there's trees to replace but now we're a bit more intensive with the with the harvesting we're trying to encourage the community to put back what we take out i guess it's a longer term view of the bush, rather than here and now, what I need now, and then, and then taking it, it's It's thinking about the future so that the kids of the people who are benefiting from the wood now will benefit from that in the future.
1: Andrew Elderson, a ranger with Yalata Ananu Aboriginal lands on the far west coast of South Australia, ending that report from Jodie Hamilton. You can read more on that story. You'll find it on the RN homepage at abc.net.au slash RN. Just look for Country Breakfast under programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Still to come, we'll chat with the young butchers behind the counter at a popular country butcher shop. And we'll discover how a regional brewery is using renewable energy and recycled water to reduce its environmental footprint. At this brewery
5: in regional New South Wales sustainability is top of mind. Brewing obviously uses quite a lot of water. A competitive industry standard is
12: four litres of water per litre of beer used, and we're very close to that at the moment. So the next frontier for us is really reducing that further. The way we propose to do that is, you can see these tanks behind us here. That's what's called trade waste. So our wastewater goes into those tanks and eventually down the sewer. What we want to do is actually put the water from those tanks into artificial wetlands essentially, so ponds that will have floating wetland vegetation in them. And what that vegetation will hopefully do is strip out nitrogen and phosphorus from the water, as well as giving the water time to settle, become more highly oxygenated and just cleaner. And then the ultimate goal of that is that should this work, we'll be able to pipe that back into the brewery and use it for cleaning floors and things like that, and then It goes back into the system and starts all over again. So much more circular use of the water.
5: Hello, I'm Nick McLaren. I'm chatting to Ocean Sweeney, the Director of Sustainability and Brewing at Jervis Bay Brewing at Huskisson on the New South Wales south coast. Recycling water through wetlands is just one of the initiatives the brewery is undertaking to reduce their environmental impact with a goal of becoming carbon neutral.
12: Wetlands are known to be one of the best water purifying systems that you can find. I'm an ecologist by training so I'm very drawn to sustainability naturally and look I'm gonna be honest it's a bit of an experiment we'll see how they work but I'm really confident that the ponds will definitely get the water to a much higher standard than trade waste alone. I have identified a lot of wetland vegetation that we'll actually use some rushes, some reeds and things like that and we'll have them all on a big floating uh, hoop I guess and fingers crossed they do the job of cleaning up the water for us.
5: Where I'm standing now I can see uh, an electric vehicle and it's not just a sedan it's actually a a van and behind that are the big silver cylindrical I don't know if you call them vats, that the the beer is made in or stored in. Tell us, what's going on here? This is pretty exciting. The electric vehicle that you see is new to us. It actually
12: spends most of its time in Sydney with our Sydney sales ambassador, but he's down for a meeting today, so he's got it plugged in there, and that is being 100% charged by the solar panels that are up on our roof, which is very gratifying. It's our ultimate aim to move towards a fleet of electric vehicles and replace all petrol-powered vehicles, but as you'll know, There's been a little bit of policy stasis on that, so they're still very expensive and reasonably hard to come by. So we're hoping things will change. So So, so
5: do you have to have a, a battery for it to charge off the
12: battery? No, not at all. When the sun's out and our panels are producing electricity, everything that uses the electricity in the building is using electric from our solar preferentially. So that's how solar works these days. So you can hear the chiller units humming away in the background as well. They are one of the biggest energy users in the brewery because cooling liquid is pretty much where all of our power goes the chillers all the cooling the electric vehicle all the people working on laptops all the pumps that are running at the moment are all being covered by our solar power now which is fantastic and what happens at night then does it have to switch back to regular power at night it does that's absolutely correct so that's a big frontier we're working on that I've been looking into, for example, wind turbines. At the moment they're reasonably expensive and I've got a bit more research to do to figure out whether we can get a micro turbine here and it will produce enough power for us. Alright, let's uh,
5: wander up to the front. So we're standing in front of what looks like three tanks with pipes attached to them and some kind of uh, electronic uh, device that uh, looks quite technical. What, What are we looking at here?
12: Actually, what you're looking at is very simple. They're domestic solar hot water units. So I mentioned to you about our solar electricity, the um, solar PV. But we've also got these three tanks that heat water passively on the roof as well. One of the biggest energy costs in terms of gas for us is heating water. So anything we can do to preheat the water before it goes into the brewery saves us on gas and therefore saves in carbon emissions. We have had these in from day dot in this brewery. We're going to get them retrofitted across the road, so we'll then be able to look at our new gas use compared with the old gas use without these solar hot water units and do a calculation to see how much we're not emitting. But you still have gas as a, as a backup? Yeah, absolutely. At the moment, we can't escape gas. We have a steam boiler and in order to boil the liquid that is required as a part of the brewing process, you really have no option but gas at the moment. That's why technology like green hydrogen is so so exciting for industrial processes because were we able to get rid of gas, we would essentially only have to reduce our nighttime electricity emissions and we'd be really on a path to zero emissions.
0: In her hometown of Donnybrook in southern Western Australia, 21-year-old Zoe Wurstfold is following in her mum's footsteps, becoming a butcher.
13: Mum, yeah, she loved the idea of me being an apprentice butcher, taking after her steps and stuff, so that was good. I also went to Harvey Ag College and did a bit there of butchering, so that helped as well, and I enjoyed it there, so yeah.
0: G'day, I'm Ellie Honeybone. I'm chatting to Zoe in the butcher shop where she is undertaking her apprenticeship under the guidance of another female, 22-year-old butcher shop owner, Georgia Rutter. And so far, Zoe says working with meat and sharp knives is a role she really loves.
13: It's easy working with a great crew. I love it, I guess. So, yeah, so far I love it. Um, I do a bit of everything. I'm really fortunate, I guess, being a mature apprenticeship, apprentice. I get to do a lot more than probably younger apprentices, having the more life skills, I guess, being older. So, learning the more advanced things um, every day, so that's, yeah, that's good.
0: It's a pretty small team here, but you've got two girls out of, like, five people. How does that, that must be pretty awesome to have.
13: Yeah, no, it's really good having another girl um, keep the the boys in line, and um, (laughs) that's what everyone asks for every day. All the customers, oh, you're keeping the boys in line, so, yep, we are. Yeah, having a girl boss as well is, is great, and it's easy when Jordan, Bryn and Mason have the passion, and it just... It's easy when they have the passion there so like it rubs off on you and I guess going over and beyond for other customers is just really good and just feels like you're always doing good deeds and it's just yeah it's really nice because they're always happy with it and I love that the steak's not just a steak there's so much more to it do you ever go home and um, chat with your mum about tips and tricks and like how's how she going with it yeah she's she always asks how it's going and um and says how I do things and like tells me how to do stuff better and says, Come on, Zoe, we're sharpening knives today, come learn or whatever. But
14: yeah, sometimes, sort of yeah. I'm Georgia Rutter and I am co owner, I'd say, of um, Dottingbrook Butchers with, yeah, Bryn and I own our partnerships in the shop. So yeah, obviously, I didn't think I would be in this industry a few years ago, but you know, Bryn's really passionate about it and I definitely like wanted to help him with that and definitely believed in his passions and I came from like a food background and my mum had a cafe so obviously different a butcher but still kind of similar things so um no definitely thought you know give it a crack and see how we go and I love it loving being here and learning so much and you know it's nice having Zoe here as well another girl it's um, always good to not be outbalanced by the boys. (laughs) So yeah, what's it like running a butcher shop every day? Like, um, it's definitely different to what obviously I said. I thought I would be doing, but no, it's awesome. You meet so many lovely people, and everyone's so nice. And you learn. I think being in a small town as well, it's definitely different if you were in Perth or something. You know, we um know most of the people that come in and learn. You know, I've definitely become friends with lots of people that I wouldn't have probably known beforehand and yeah it's great and definitely long hours but it's great you know we enjoy what we do I think that's what helps if you know if you don't like what you're doing it's definitely going to be a lot harder to get up every day and do it so yeah
0: (laughs) do you think it helps having some some girls in here just to you know make sure things are done right (laughs) yes
14: definitely definitely girls it proves that they I think we think a lot different to boys, <laughs> I mean even like teaching Zoe, Zoe didn't really know much to start with and it's definitely a lot easier teaching a girl than a boy. I think just a lot more common sense I'd say, <laughs> um, you know, and we think, you know, it's good we think a bit differently so we get catch on things that the boys might not quite you know, catch on about or things like that so no it's definitely, definitely good having another girl in here.
0: <laughs> what would be your favourite aspect about owning and, and running this business?
14: You can make any decision you want, and anything you like. Oh, maybe we should try that. You don't have to ask someone, or can we do that? Like, just do it what you want. Like, um, and I think that's good because we can change things every day or do whatever we like. So it's it's good having that, you know, freedom to change things and try new things. So yeah, you got us. Swag of trophies around here, so you're
0: obviously doing pretty well. Just some customers just now
14: said that you put a lot of passion and into it, and you can, and they can tell. Yeah. What do you What do you say to that? Oh, I think it's really nice that you know we you, we do put so much time and effort into it, and I think it's really nice that we have you know been got awards to show that we like proves that we do do a lot of work, and it's lovely. So many customers come in and say congratulations, and it's really nice how many people have noticed and. They do know how much work we put in, and it's not, you know, it's not unseen, you know. So yeah.
1: Georgia Rudder from Donnybrook Butchers in southwest Western Australia. We also heard from her apprentice, Zoe Worsford, in that interview with reporter Ellie Honeybone. Before that, Nick McLaren took a tour of the Jervis Bay Brewing Co.'s new plant on the New South Wales south coast. You'll find more on those stories and all of the stories on today's program. Just log on to the RN homepage and look for Country Breakfast.
15: With ABC
12: Listen, explore a whole new world of podcasts and live radio, like unpicking fast fashion in Veronica Milsom's podcast, Threads.
9: The marketing tricks being used on us right now.
12: Or learning to spend less and live better with
5: Nazim Hussain's Pineapple Project.
9: Do we all really need it? And if we do, how do we get it
5: for cheap? The ABC Listen app.
4: A whole new world of live radio and on-demand audio entertainment.
1: Download it now from your app store. Spain's southern coast is home to the world's largest surface area of greenhouses in the world, earning it the nickname the Plastic Coast. These greenhouses transform the region's economy, producing a bounty of fresh produce that gets exported around the world. Many of the farmers are members of cooperatives, and one of the leading organisations there is the Unica Group. Its leader, Enrique de los Rios, was recently in Melbourne to talk with the peak body for Australian cooperatives, the BCCM. Who will hear from shortly, but first let's hear a little bit from Enrique about farming on Spain's plastic coasts.
2: We produce produce and fruits, and uh, we are around five thousand farmers, uh, five thousand employees at the packing houses, and uh, twelve thousand workers at the farms.
1: And are they located in a certain area of Spain?
2: Basically, we are located what is called the Plastic Sea in the south of Spain. It's an area of 50 kilometres long, where 80% of the European needs for produce uh, during five months in the year are located, and, uh, but we have also co-ops around Spain.
1: Is it mainly for domestic consumption or do you export as well?
2: No, we are mainly oriented to export. We, we feel that we are more German growers than Spanish growers. <laughs>
1: At the moment, there is quite a severe drought in Spain. What does that look like from a farmer's point of view?
2: It is, it's, it's, uh, we can say that uh, we are used to this kind of things because uh, Spain is like Australia. We are at the border of humidity and, 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 and desert. And, uh, but this year has been extremely hard. So at the coast we can take the uh, water and make desalination for the greenhouses but inside for for the orange trees and stuff it's it's going to be a very very tough year some plants and trees will not produce this year Is there a risk of any of those permanent trees dying It is it is and uh, we just uh, irrigate them as uh, an emergency but not to produce So the farmers in your co op all over
1: Spain really are dealing with the drought. And I imagine, like farmers all over the world, they're paying more for things like agricultural chemicals and fertilizer now because of the war in Ukraine. So, is that really um, adding up in terms
2: of the bills that they're paying? It is. <clears throat> what uh, we have, uh, what we try is to first to try to contend the, the increase of cost but also to transmit the cost to consumers and uh, for our surprise uh, this year customers were more willing to accept price increases because they knew that it was true and if they wanted to have uh, fresh produce in Europe they have to go through it even though uh, increase has been around 15% but the cost has been increased also by 20, 22%. So uh, there's no compensation, really.
1: Consumers all over the world are dealing with really high inflation, especially around food. So um, you just mentioned Spanish. Your consumers, sorry, um, are are happy to pay the higher prices, but is it reaching a limit where you think um, it might be reaching the maximum willingness to pay for things like fresh food?
2: Uh, Yes, I think that there is a kind of, crystal selling there Um, but also I think that we should make more regarding marketing of fresh produce for example if you buy a croissant or a dorayaki you are paying around $20 per kilo but you know you you do not realize because you pay per unit if you buy a banana you are paying one banana is around 20 cents of dollar And it's at the same level as one dorayaki, which is one dollar and a half. And so we are also making marketing of, do you really know what you are eating? Because this is cheap. One apple, 30 cents is cheap. Is there anything about your cooperative structure
1: that helps deal with these challenges or helps farmers deal with these challenges a little bit differently or easily than if they were just farming by themselves
2: in the wide open market? of course cooperative it's uh, there is a, a spirit inside the coop we are willing we we, we are comfortable with the needs and, and with the with the problems let's say so it's very cold outside and they know it um, but uh, apart from that we need to keep the culture of the coop because some uh, growers may feel that they are okay and they may feel, uh, when I feel the need, I want the co-op. And when I am okay, I want to be individual. So we try to reinforce the cooperation culture continuously and uh, making them aware of where they are uh, in this situation. And is that more than just about making sure that they're getting a good price for their produce? Price is just the top of the iceberg. But uh, if we say, if you, if you live out of price, you will die because of the price, because there will be always the perception that my neighbor is uh, one cent more than I am. So who is paying me this difference and uh, uh, this spirit, if, if it becomes selfish, can destroy the co-op, then friction starts and then factions, and then the co-op is over. So, we try to reinforce what we call the emotional link with the co-op. You have to feel that this is much more than price. It's that uh, we are a group. It's that we have more opportunities together. It's that we are goalkeepers, and we don't know where they are going to throw the ball. But if we are big, agile, resilient, and we react immediately to situations, then we have more probabilities to survive. And, and they know. Can you talk a bit more about the extra things that you do in the
1: co-op that
2: would be included beyond just price? Price is just an illusion. It's a perception that I have. And uh, there are many engineers of price in other companies and they know how to deal with growers in order to present them a better price than, uh, than we do. So we try them to um, make them aware Uh, And we, as I told you, we teach uh, stoic uh, philosophy. Uh, Where are you? What is uh, out of your control? What is in your control? And to um, uh, develop a critic uh, mentality so that uh, you are able to deal deal with this situation. You are not, uh, uh, let's say, uh, impressed by your neighbor price and you are able to say, OK, let me, let's compare. OK, but this is this quality. Oh, but this is today. We have to see the whole campaign and stuff. So uh, we make them less reactive to price issues and more aware of the whole equation of value uh, that is the co-op for them.
1: FARMING IN A CO-OP to an extent, does that allow, you know, leaders of the co-op like you to deal with some of the more political risks in terms of, um, you know, government policies that might affect farming? Um, I know there's a lot going on in the EU with, you know, the relationship between farming and the EU and the government.
2: Yes, it's true. We we in Europe, we, we are complicated, you know, it's like Australia with uh, 30 countries and 30 languages. You, you can imagine if you go from from Melbourne to Sydney, five countries and many languages and uh, and all of them thinking that they are the best in the world. So, uh, I, I, In the co-op I'm more in the strategic area I am in the European Union for example in the strategy farm to fork and I devote time to that because we think that this is useful for the co-op and then I keep uh, people managing the co-op. Uh, we said yesterday that uh, co-ops cannot be managed because by nature they have to be lead. So I try to keep people managing and then I lead. In the, uh, when there is an issue I, I go there, but uh, most of my time I am in the European Union or the, with the Ministry of, uh, like Melina, <laughs> this is here and there, trying to set the strategy and trying to align the law with our needs. You are in Melbourne
1: um, this week to talk with uh, other Australian cooperatives. What is the message that you're bringing here?
2: Well, um, as I told you before, is that uh, co ops here and there are the same. Basically, it's the same. So, um, and cooperation cannot stop at the level of the co op, it has to go further. I mean, we have to make strong federations of co ops in order to face the market, and a strong association of co-ops in order to face the government. And uh, this is an endless uh, thing that we have to keep, because when they feel, we feel that uh, we are okay, cooperation stops, and unless we have to say no, no, this is inside our DNA, and we have to move forward. And I think Australia here, they have uh, room to go uh, in, in the sense of making bigger federations even though there are big co-ops they can make bigger ones and uh, face the future with uh, more tranquility.
1: Enrique de los Rios is the general manager of the UNICA group, a horticultural cooperative on the south coast of Spain. He was here to address the Business Council of Cooperatives and Mutuals, or BCCM, recently, and as you heard at the end there, he's coming with a message. So I asked the BCCM CEO, Melinda Morrison, about the potential for more collaboration between Australian cooperatives.
15: It's always been a great model for scaling entities to come together. The traditional cooperative in agriculture in, in Australia is a collection of farmers. They're, they're independent businesses, fa- family farms. They come together through their cooperative and essentially it's to do the same thing. It's to control and own the supply chain, to shorten it, and to make sure you get the best return to the farm gate from producing the products. So if you scale that out again and you start to create what we call a secondary cooperative or a federation, then you you absolutely increase the power to be able to do things together. We're talking about major export markets, for example, the logistics that you need in transport, exports, storage, the marketing, it's such a great way to scale your impact. But the important thing is at the grassroots, the independence of the family farm entity itself.
1: I get the sense, especially in Australia, um, maybe it's a bit more of an individualistic society than um, a lot of the European countries in Spain. Are they discussions that come up frequently in in the co-op world? Uh, world and how is that attitude discussed, I guess?
15: Look, it's cyclical. We definitely went through a period of demutualisation, corporatisation of cooperatives. The last big one to go was Murray Goulburn. What that's meant is that we have diluted the ownership of Australian agricultural holdings, but also our advanced food and beverage manufacturing industries. And now we're starting to realise, coming off the back of a pandemic and food security being so front of mind that you actually need onshore to have that capacity. So I actually think we're coming back around the other way. We're talking about re-cooperatising those corporate entities. We want to see the, the food supply chain from the paddock to the plate, Australian owned and managed. So why not bring back the canneries, for example? Do you, we're not canning pineapple in Australia. Those great Aussie labels, the SAFCOLs, the Golden Circles, the Goulburn Valley, this is the discussion now. What happened to our food and beverage manufacturing sector? A lot of the things that drove that before were access to capital cooperative law has advanced it's modernized it's not so hard to bring capital external capital growth capital into cooperatives we do talk about being less cooperative than say europe but a lot of it is just really about geographics we're spread out so This idea of federating means that the tyranny of distance doesn't have to stop us coming together to scale cooperatives of cooperatives that can be spread out across the country to be able to do the same thing, which is to cooperatively manage our supply chains. It's actually rational self-interest. So it's not about being more cooperative or less cooperative. It's really what makes economic and community sense in the business context of doing the farm work in the first place.
1: The BCCM's Melinda Morrison, and picture that, a return to the local canneries. Before Melinda, Enrique de los Rios on the Spanish co-op situation. We might actually be hearing from another Spaniard very soon. He's a UWA graduate doing some exciting stuff with biological fertilizers back home in Spain. I'm trying to line that up for you. But in the meantime, my thanks to Kath Sullivan, Kath McAlan and Matthew Crawford for helping bring Country Breakfast together this week. And buenos dias to the rest of my Saturday morning amigos here on
0: RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.